You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's the 1st of June, Wednesday the 1st of June, marking not only the beginning of a new month, but the beginning of a new tenure. A new chair of the British Horse Racing Authority has taken his seat. Joe Somerer-Smith replaces Anna-Marie Phelps today. He's only in the job for 18 months, initially at any rate, and in a few moments' time he will be talking about what he hopes to achieve with the announcement of a new strategy for British racing with the RCA and the Thoroughbred Group, the key racing stakeholders. You'll be learning about where the BHA now sits in terms of the governance of the sport, or at least its aspirations at any rate. But of course, this is Derby Week. And before we get to Joe Somerez-Smith, I want to give you an update on state of conditions at Epsom, because here in TW11 today, it's not very warm. It's pretty grey. It's pretty drab. There are showers forecast. There's a deluge of biblical proportions in some weather forecasts somewhere around the weekend. Andrew Cooper is the clerk of the course on Epsom Downs. Andrew, just what's it looking like from your perspective? Well, I think, Nick, I think Wednesday today is our last sort of uh, immediate risk of, of showers. I think around the sort of lunchtime period today, there could be some showers here. Thursday and Friday, pretty confidently look dry days, um, sort of 20 degrees on Thursday, 20. 122 even maybe on friday i think i think to be fair there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what saturday uh, looks like in weather terms i mean there certainly are some forecasts out there suggesting rain uh, equally i can find uh, others that are suggesting it won't really get to us certainly in time for racing and that sunday looks the wet day i just think as has been the case really for the last week there's there's no great confidence amongst the um you know the forecasters as to exactly what saturday's going to bring is there a forecast that you prefer over all the others? Is there one that you tend to re- not rely on? Nobody can rely on them, but go by. Uh, I I probably look at about three different forecasts fairly regularly, and we we have a sort of a, a hotline straight into the Met Office to talk to a forecaster direct on any you know twenty four hours a day. So so I just sort of pull that information, and you know I suppose over the years you get used to sort of averaging it out a little bit and make, making your decisions accordingly. Uh, so, yeah, even the most qualified meteorologist can't tell you whether there's definitively going to be rain on Saturday at Epsom at this point. No, they can't. They can't. They, they will be talking of a risk, something bubbling up from the south. I think timing of it, extent of it, volume of it, I think is uh, literally very much up in the air. What ground are we going to be racing on Friday if things go as you as you expect? I think there's a reasonable, and depending how we come out of today, today if we if we don't see anything today or we see next to nothing today, I think by the time we get to Sat Friday for two dry days here and reasonably warm, I would think we'd be just on the sort of slow side of good. Uh, you'd, you'd call most of it good to soft here this morning. There's a few soft spots up the home straight on the on the rail where the Oaks is. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd anticipate horses coming mid to stand side if they're racing at Epsom here 
today. Um, and so we'll see how that sort of settles down and, and progresses over the over the next couple of days. But I, you know, I, I think certainly think there's a good chance of sort of slow side of good for Friday. Uh, Andrew Cooper, there, clerk of the course at Epsom. Lee Mottishead, the senior writer from the Racing Post, is with me. Uh, today he'll be listening with with you to Joe Somerville Smith in a few moments' time. But Lee, first of all, I thought it um, appropriate to get a quick blast of, of of a going update from Epsom because it will be dictating an awful lot of people's bets over the next few days. Um, it sounds like oh, I don't know, don't know. Does that make it any easier for you? It's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. Um, I live uh, ten minute drive at the very most, so seven or eight minutes from Epsom Racecourse. I walked it. Yesterday, I walked alongside it, Nick, yesterday, early evening. I did briefly set a foot on the track at the crossing points. And to my uh, untrained sketches, uh, it felt pretty darn good. Um, didn't seem bad at all, but the weather forecast is unpredictable. I'm one of those that has a pretty basic BBC weather app on my phone. It suggests Sunday here could be awful, or certainly could be very wet and thundery. It says that Ashstead, where I am, it's likely to be dry all day on Saturday. It says that Epsom, which says 10 minutes away, could have light rain for most of the day. So who'd be a clerk of the course? It's very hard to predict. Um, what is often the case is that we see the ground on Oaks Day tend to be better than the ground. So it tends to be worse than the ground on Derby Day, softer than the ground on Derby Day. I said that for years to people, I can't ever recall a Derby where the horses have come across stand side, which they often do in the Oaks, partly because the rail gets taken down on Derby Day so they have further to come across. But it could be that we have ground, uh, softer ground for, for the Oaks this year, although Andrew seemed to think it might just be on the easy side. I think one camp that definitely will not want to see more rain is the camp of the, the favourite, Emily Upjohn. I say that only because I distinctly remember connections saying after... Uh, either Sandown or York, that they wouldn't want wouldn't want her racing on much softer ground than she had at, at, at York. I think mm. they thought the ground maybe was a little bit tacky for her at York. So I suspect they probably wouldn't want a deluge between now and then. Looking one day afterwards, of course, if you're a, a desert crown man, which I am, we might discuss later on, he won on soft ground on his debut at Nottingham. So I don't think he'd mind whatever. But I think if you are a supporter of the favourite, Emily Upjohn in the Oaks, you probably don't want to see too much rain between now and Friday, ideally anyway. Yeah, and I think the key for Saturday is that if there was a deluge Saturday morning which turned the ground really soft for the derby, then it's really more a question of which horses are least likely to be able to stretch their speed on soft ground, more of which later in the programme. Well, it's the 1st of June today. Today marks the first day uh, that Joe Somerer-Smith is in the chair at the British Horse Racing Authority at a very important time as well. When isn't it? And a press release was put out yesterday. Racing's leaders have pledged to work together over the coming months to set a long-term strategy and priorities for the British racing industry. The strategy will look at areas including prize money, the race programme, alongside the breeding industry, ensuring there are enough of the right horses to fulfil the race programme, equine and people welfare, collection, use of data, the owner experience, integrity, customer engagement, and the overall marketing of horse racing, both domestically and internationally, and the leaders of the major stakeholders, the RCA, the Thoroughbred Group, which used to be called the Horsemen's Group, and the British Horse Racing Authority, will work together to set a mid- to long-term strategy to help stakeholders align on a plan for the long-term sustainability of the industry. Joe Somerez-Smith is with me now. Uh, congratulations on the, on the new role, Joe. Isn't this what the, the industry was already doing, or, or already supposed to be doing anyway? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the industry obviously has had um, long-term strategic pillars of growth. I think the, the feeling um, amongst the people at the top of the sport was that we weren't um, laying it out as a 10 to 20-year vision for strategically where we want the sport to be. And that actually by uh, coming together to, to agree what those that should be and stating it to the industry, it would help the individual groups um, understand where their own strategies should fit into an overall vision for the sport. So in 20 years in your racing utopia, okay, maybe that's a bit extreme. In 10 years, say, in your racing utopia, you've had quite a bit of time to think about this in the lead up to you taking the role. How would you see the sport looking and feeling better than it does now? Well, I don't think it's really for me to actually uh, put that together. I think that is for the sport to decide amongst the participants uh, and, and the race courses what that should look like. But I think that there is an overall feeling that um, at the moment uh, there, there is a, a pot that people are um, uh, looking, you know, a financial pot uh, which has to be shared out between everybody in the sport. And the only way of increasing that pot and increasing things like prize money is to get more people involved in the sport and to get um, uh, to, to grow the overall uh, interest in the sport. And um, really what we need to do is looking about how, how we do that. So ju just, just explain that a, a little if you can. Uh, when you say to, to grow the sport and get more people in, interested in the sport, where do you feel the sport is deficient in that regard as things stand now? What are we not doing right now? Well, there's lots of areas, but um, I think particularly uh, around understanding uh, customer behavior. So, uh, for example, we we don't have very good data uh, across the sport. So we don't have a, a, a customer, a single view of the customer um, as, uh, for example, an owner. Um, I am uh, I'm a, I know that I'm in the Weatherby's data database. Uh, as for different people, that, that partly because it's Joe Somerys Smith with and without a hyphen, Joseph Somerys Smith with and without a hyphen. But you know, if I have a horse running at Lingfield, for example, um, Lingfield don't know whether I've got shares in that in that particular horse that's running on the day, or whether I've got shares in eight horses and what my bloodstock interests are. So really, it's just um, it's it's getting a better understanding of of all the all the people who are involved in the sport, uh, the customers, and looking at ways to get them to come racing more often, but also just looking at uh, across, you know, where, how do we get new people in? How do we get a younger demographic into the, into the sport? Um, and obviously, there's lots of efforts to try and do that, but um, this is really about joining it up a bit more. Yeah, I mean, isn't, isn't this what GBR and, and prior to that Racing for Change have been doing for the last 15 years or so? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really about how do we find more money for, uh, to fund GBR better? Uh, how, do we, uh, you know, how, do, how do we do this across, as a cross-industry? Um, you know, obviously, individual race courses are doing great jobs of getting people through the door, but that is, it, it absolutely happens at a, a race course group level or at the individual race courses. Uh, and I, I think there's just a general feeling that a, a proper strategic vision would help uh, improve that performance. But I mean, evidence from, from 
2022, excepting the huge festivals at Cheltenham and Aintree, suggests that, and, and I, I'm not slagging them, but racecourses aren't doing a great job of getting people through the door because attendance figures are down even at some of the premium fixtures. Yeah, I think that um, the consumer behaviour seems to have changed quite a lot. Obviously, cost of living crisis. I mean, I, I think that it, it's not just racing that is uh, is suffering from this. I was talking to somebody who runs um, sort of uh, raves that are, uh, well, they're not really raves, that, but they it's, it's sort of classical music. It's classic, classic Ibiza. And they were just saying that consumer behavior has changed massively and their projections for ticket sales and things uh, has changed markedly in the last six weeks. So I think, I mean, the, you know, what's happening at racecourse level is, is also happening to lots of other businesses. Um, you know, it's, we, we've got to accept that um, there's, you know, most people are, are tightening their belts a bit at the moment. Okay, so we'll, we'll take it as read that a key plank of the industry strategy is consumer focused. You want to get more people onto race courses and you want to get more younger people involved in the sport. That's, that's incredibly laudable. I'm sure everybody w- would agree with that. I'm interested in the sentence which says the strategy will be framed around the industry's shared ambition to maintain and enhance Britain's position as a leading player in world racing. How do you think British racing leads the world or can aspire to lead the world? What what are the key uh, metrics by which you're going to judge that? Well, I think that um, we we do have uh, the world's leading bloodstock industry. Uh, We have racing uh, right at the top end that uh, international runners do want to come to, um, but we've got to make sure that that is sustained. Um, And we've got to, so uh, some, some of it is about prize money, some of it is about going out and making the case about why uh, international runners should should be participating in in our top races uh, but you know some of it some of it is uh, making sure that international owners stay here but also that new new international owners want to have uh, runners and uh, and breeding operations and uh, and you know train the horses in the UK so what do you think at the moment is British racing's selling point for an international owner? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, it, the, the experience uh, of, of the top races and how, uh, you know, how you're looked after and the prestige of winning those races still makes it very attractive for some of the top owners. But clearly, we are being told by some of those top owners that the attraction of, of greater prize money overseas is something that they're looking at and that long term, uh, the industry needs to be very aware of that. We talk a little bit about the strategy itself. Wilf Walsh, who's a key part of this because he's the new chair of the Racecourse Association, says that we need to ensure that we're committed to being agile and getting things done by making the most of the passion, knowledge and capability that exists within the sport. What, what do you think he means by agile there? I think that um, uh, Wilf coming from uh, you know, a highly commercial background is frustrated uh, by the speed of change, uh, sometimes in horse racing, the large amount of committees that everything goes through. Um, and he would, like to, you know, he would like to see changes made more rapidly. And I think most people in the sport would agree with that. Is this, is this agreement implicitly giving the British Horse Racing Authority more power 
I don't think it's really about power, but I do think that it is about direction and it's about uh, the stakeholders and shareholders of, of the BHA um, giving uh, giving the BHA a direction and letting the executive go off and execute on that. Um, so I think it will give a lot more clarity about what people expect the BHA to do and also allow them to then uh, uh, you know, mark whether the BHA have done that effectively or not. Power's rather a, a melodramatic word, I agree. Perhaps I should rephrase it. Are the stakeholders, the, the racecourses and the, the thoroughbred group, formerly the horsemen's group, are they now agreeing to give you more authority to lead the sport? I think they are, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, we are doing a lot of work on the governance of the BHA. And um, uh, I'm obviously working very closely with Will Walsh and Charlie Parker uh, about how that should look. Um, and hopefully, we will have something to show the industry quite soon. Um, but yes, I think that they would like to see that the you know that the BHA is empowered to go off and do the do the projects that um, the the shareholders have uh, have prioritised. So you've got a, a strategic vision for the sport, which involves great cooperation between all the stakeholders, between the thorough, thoroughbred group and all its constituent parts, the National Trainers Federation, the Racehorse Owners Association, the National Association of Racing Staff, and the Professional Jockey Association, and of course all the all the race courses. So you've got this deadline date for, for June the 8th to, to slice 300 uh, races off the, off the fixture list next year. Is that, is that going to get done? Are you optimistic that that's going to get done? Um, I think I will leave that to uh, the, the relevant parties who are still in very detailed discussion about that. So um, I, uh, hopefully we will see something coming out of this reasonably soon. But is that not an example? And I, I appreciate the fact that it's quite sensitive and the, the specifics you don't want to go into of that particular case. But is that not a, an example of where you as the BHA need to be the, the referee, if you like, the, the arbiter, the, the, the leader, call it what you will, the, the glue, the whatever, the, 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 the cement that holds it all together to ensure that you know, this, crucial decisions like this can be agreed upon and pushed through. Somebody at some point has got to say, right, enough arguing, we're deciding this is the way forward. And isn't this one of those key, key cases? Otherwise, you know, they can just go on and on and on, batting it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, and there's no sense of authority as to who's going to drive the sport forward. And you talk about strategic visions. Isn't this, isn't this really crucial? Yes, I, I, you know, in the long run, that is what needs to be done. I'm, this, this year's debate um, has obviously been going on for some months, but I think that certainly looking at what the race programme is, what the ideal shape of the race, race programme, uh, and getting that to be driven by uh, data, and that's uh, data that is not just about betting, but about attendance and about making the product interesting and compelling. Um, is absolutely vital and uh, you know at some point as, as you say the BHA sits in the middle refereeing this but we need to get uh, agreement across the industry about what it should look like and that that is one of the strategic things that we are setting ourselves uh, is is how how do we want that race program to look and uh, you know what does it look like in 10 years time or 20 years time um, so uh, yes it, it absolutely uh, the BHA needs to be able to be empowered to do that, uh, but um, we we need uh, the participants. We need everybody to agree what roughly what it should look like.
Mm. I mean, presumably, there's a, a key responsibility on the on the leaders uh, of those stakeholder bodies to get their own constituent parts to to try and come together. At the moment, you've got a situation where, be it by the NTF and the ROA, the trainers and the owners are not agreeing on key issues of fixtures and funding. And you've got a situation, on the other hand, where ARC and the Jockey Club are at um, ideological loggerheads. How, how do you work yourself in a position where, where you can do anything about that? Well, that absolutely is what, what both Will Walsh and Charlie Parker in the respective chair roles at, at um, the RCA and, uh, and the Thoroughbred Group have said we need to get to a, a position where we can agree that, but we need to make sure that we actually have the data to make us to, to allow everybody to make evidence-based changes. And I think that, I mean, certainly if you read Charlie Parker's article in Owner Breeder, he, he feels that the, the data is not sufficiently compelling at the moment. And, and um, we, need to, uh, we need to collect all that data together to allow us to make those decisions. Joe, you're taking over today as, as chair of the of the BHA. I realise it's very early days, but you've got a strong background in in all aspects of the sport as an owner, breeder, a bookmaking industry, as a key figure in in the media uh, business. Um, do you look at horse racing as an industry or a sport primarily? It's interesting because that's I mean it's often used interchangeably uh, and. Uh, it, it, it is it is both and um you know i i have always loved it as a sport uh and you know obviously i've been an owner for many years uh, you know a regular race goer for 35 years um but you know there is an industry behind it so uh, i think that you find that um the the closer you get to the sport the more it becomes an industry if you see what i mean um do you do you keep that in mind then? Do you think, well, perhaps I should always pinch myself and make myself take a step back sometimes and try and look at it and appreciate it for for the reasons that I loved it in the first place? Completely. And I mean, you know, I I am hugely enthusiastic about it as a sport. I love going racing. I love going to visit the you know visit my horses that I've got in training. Um, and I love taking other people and, and them seeing for the first time, you know, the, the absolute, you know, the amazing spectacle of a thoroughbred, either, you know, either on the gallops or uh, on the race course. Um, and so I'm, you know, uh, yeah, for example, at Royal Ascot, I'm getting four, four of my Italian friends over and they've, they've never been racing before in their lives. And some of that is the thrill of just seeing it through their, their eyes for the first time. And so I'm always... You know, I'm always trying to do that and go back to, you know, why, why, you know, why is horse racing such an amazing sport and how do we get more people to understand that? But in, in the end, there are, you know, there are lots and lots of people's jobs who rely on the industry being well run. Uh, and you've got to always remember that that, you know, in the end, if you don't run it efficiently and well and, and looking for, you know, long-term growth, then you know there won't be a sport to celebrate. Do you think when when racecourses are really admitting that it's more sensible, more commercially viable to 
shut down huge portions of their race course because they know that not too many people are going to come and to thereby just not incentivize anybody to come racing because it's cheaper than for them to do so do you do you look at at that simply as a as a as as a reality of the sport or a a sort of pragmatic reality or do you look at that as a slightly depressing which side of the fence do you sit on i can absolutely understand why the race courses you know if if you do only have uh, you know a handful of people coming coming racing it is obviously cheaper to to run behind closed doors but uh you know from a uh, from somebody who loves the sport i think i think it's a shame you know you do need the you do need an audience uh you know i've spent a long time in the us and canada uh and i found that going to tracks that basically didn't have any audience you you lose a whole load of the character of that and you know i think it would be a shame if we if we end up uh, running a substantial number number of you know races effect effectively behind closed doors, um, but you know you do need to get more people in. It's, you know you can't it you, know, it you can't sort of fully staff bars and all the facilities if you've only got a hundred people there. Uh, you need to, you know it needs to be in the thousands. And of course, you can't get the thousands of people there unless you're putting on a, a consumer product that's desirable. Absolutely agreed. Yeah. Joe, best of luck um, with this with this new role. It's a, is it? Am I right in thinking it's a, a three year term, or what, what's the what's the term? No, so I'm I'm term limited to eighteen months. So mm-hmm. I've been on the BHA board for seven and a half years, and the uh, maximum term at the moment is nine years. So um, I I know how long I'm in the job for. Okay, so that so you're that that's it. You can't go on any longer than eighteen months. Uh, not unless I do some sort of Putin-style takeover, but um, it, that seems fairly unlikely. Do you think you can get much done in that time? I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I'm all for a, a new chair with great vision, but um, what's going to happen when you when you've done your take? It'll be over before it's begun. Well, that's the whole idea. Is that you know, um, I, I, you know, that that's that's partly why we're making things, you know, announcements on day <laughs> one, uh, and partly, you know, I, when I sat down, I, I think I you know wrote an initial list of about 68 things i wanted to do uh you just have to prioritize and uh, be realistic about what you can deliver and hopefully you know leave the position in a in a and the sport in a slightly better place than when you started i don't know why you're wasting all this time talking to me you've got enough to be getting on with i'll expect at least 67 of those 68 to be accomplished within the next 17 months joe somerville smith thanks so much for talking to me thank you nick so it's the 1st of June, and that was the incoming chair of the British Horse Racing Authority, Joe Somerez-Smith. As he pointed out at the end there, he's no stranger to the BHA boardroom. He's been there for, for seven years already. Lee has been listening in. What were your observations? My observations, Nick. Well, first of all, um, it was good to hear the new chair uh, speaking so extensively on key issues for the sport. I think Joe Somerez-Smith is someone who... Uh, lives and breathes horse racing. He is a clearly a huge fan of the sport. He's been connected to the sport for a long time. I have no doubt that he goes into the job with a great racing background and a great passion to do good things. At the heart of this um, interview and at the heart of the announcement that the BHA made yesterday is that British racing is to have a strategic plan 
for the next 10 to 20 years. Now, it is, of course, a very laudable thing that this sport or this industry, and that was an interesting debate on that point there, Nick, sport or industry, I'd always say sport first, industry second. It's laudable that uh, horse racing will have a strategic plan for the next 10 to 20 years. But if I'm just being a little bit a little bit harsh, one might say that the, the, the horse racing putting out a press release and announcement to say that we will have a strategic plan for the next 10 to 20 years is akin to Rafa Nadal putting out a press release to say he has a racket. Um, you know, horse racing should have a strategic plan for the next 10 to 20 years. It's almost astonishing that horse racing doesn't have a strategic plan in place that's publicly documented for the next 10 to 20 years. And that is not in saying that a criticism of the BHA, it is a reflection of how difficult a sport this is to run because of disunity between the the various stakeholders. So it's good that we are now hopefully going to be in a position where someone can actually open a document and see for the next 10 to 20 years, this is what British racing aspires to be. What else did I take from the interview? Um, I thought when you asked, uh, Joe, what would this strategy uh, look like? Um, he said, it's not for me to put that together. Now, for me, that was indicative of someone acknowledging the absence of uh, thrust and power that the BHA has had to this point. He said, I don't think it is about power, but direction. Well, to an extent that is clearly true, but equally there has been considerable debate within the, the sport, within the industry for some time about how much power the BHA should have. I thought it was encouraging when you tried to clarify him on that and said, are the stakeholders now agreeing to give you more authority to lead the sport? He said, I think they are, yes. That was good to hear. And I think we should give credit, Nick, to the person who has left that office now, Anna-Marie Phelps, for getting us to this position. Um, it's, if, you, if you speak to people within the industry, there is a clear suggestion that Anne-Marie Phelps has almost fallen on her own sword, having enabled the sport to reach the point where it could agree more clearly what the BHA is there for. Um, I remember saying, I think when I was on the pod here uh, back in May, when it was announced, or back in March, sorry, when it was announced that Anne-Marie Phelps would be leaving uh, her role, that we can judge her in May when we see she succeeded in putting in place a better governance structure yeah. and got rid of the ridiculous notion that stakeholders should lead governance, because I think that would be a ridiculous notion. Well, it appears from what we've heard today that Anna-Marie felt has actually succeeded in doing that. And I think that is a, a really positive move. I think she was in charge at a very difficult time. And I think she's probably done a better job that many stakeholders in the sport might wish to, to acknowledge. I think going forward, her successor, Joe Saumarez-Smith, I thought there was an interesting exchange between the two of you there, Nick, in terms of his uh, time in the role. Clearly, as, as Joe said, he's already served seven and a half years on the board of the BHA. That means he has one and a half years to serve as chair that is not a long time at all it is very unusual 
for a chair to come into a position of such importance, knowing they have such limited time in the job. Um, I thought Joe, although he did reference uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, somewhat lightly as saying, you know, unless I do something like that, I'm not going to be able to send the job for much longer. It would not surprise me at all if within uh, the sports hierarchy, there are efforts to do what they can to enable Joe Sorbera Smith to have a more realistic period of time in the office, whether that means rewriting the articles of the BHA probably would do it, clearly need agreement between stakeholders. But I suspect that as this is the individual that clearly the stakeholders have moved to bring into the role, I would not be surprised if those same stakeholders move to try and find a way of ensuring that he can actually stay in the role for a meaningful length of time. Well, we've spoken to one chair of the BHA today, a horse owned by a former chair of the BHA, Paul Roy, Paul and Susan Roy, uh, and bred by him, is running in the Derby, Grand Alliance, who's trained by Charlie Fellows, is with me now, who's second in the Blue Ribbons trial at Epsom back in, in April, Charlie. Um, a sporting runner or a runner with a bit of a shot? I, I think I think we've we've got to be realistic here. We're a, we're a bit of a sporting uh, a runner, but you know, stranger things have happened, and he's run incredibly well at the track. Uh, he's improving with every start, and you know, we'll see. Look, he's he deserves to be there. Um, uh, he was only beaten half a length by Nahani. Nahani's sixteen to one and had the run of the race at Epsom. We're sixty-six to one and was a touch unlucky. So look, I think I think we need to improve significantly. There's a few question marks too, um, mainly over the trip. Um, but you know, if you're not in it, Nick, you can't win it. Yeah, the pedigree says one thing. The way he ran in the blue ribbon suggests another about the trip. Um, where does your where does your heart lie on this? Um, it's, a, it's a difficult one. My heart lies in, in that he'll stay it, uh, no problem. And that, um, but but whether my head possibly doesn't agree. But it's a funny one because, as you say, his his pedigree definitely says um, he's got no chance. But his, his pedigree says he's got no chance staying ten furlongs either. And every time he's run over ten, Doncaster and Epsom, he's looked like the further he wants. Uh, the better the better he gets so um you know we will we'll, we'll find out on saturday i guess it's it's very difficult to 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 tell uh, until we actually go into race conditions you're a competitive person you want to win you don't want to turn up with horses who have no chance necessarily but to what extent is there a part of you that thinks i have got somebody's homebred to the derby i mean that that in itself is is quite an achievement Look, it's 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 very very special. It's made even more special by a little bit of the backstory, which is that Paul Roy, who owned and bred the horse, uh, is born and bred in Epsom. His father was a butcher in, in Epsom. He grew up on Tattenham Corner. His parents are buried in the cemetery just next door to the racecourse. So um, for him, it has been a dream to, to have Derby, a Derby runner. He had one with Sixties Icon a few years ago. He's got another one this time that he bred. Uh, and, you know, it, it's going to be a very, very special day um, for, for, for the whole family. Uh, they're huge, huge supporters of racing. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, I, for me, I, I would love nothing more uh, to see him go and run a big race because they've been big supporters of mine too. The Derby Dream Alive for Charlie Fellows and Paul Roy, courtesy of the Outsider Grand Alliance. Now, we've been promoting shared ownership on this podcast in association with our friends at My Racehorse. 
And it is real ownership as well. It's a, a one-time payment, equity in the horse for the whole career. That includes breeding equity and share of any sales proceeds and prize money. MyRacehorse.com if you want to see the offerings for the three horses trained in the UK and Ireland at the moment with John and Thady Gosden, Andrew Balding, the filly who's already run, syndicated and will be out again soon, and uh, in Ireland with Joseph O'Brien. You can have a look at that, MyRacehorse.com. And syndicates are dreaming this week as well because the Rogues Gallery are off to Epsom with Rogue Millennium. We spoke to Rishi yesterday, who's got a little slice uh, of this filly, and he was yeah enthusiastic without trying to to um, over-egg the pudding. Uh, Tony Elliott is the man behind the syndicate. And Tony, you're dreaming as well. I think we've um, reached our peak very early, to be fair. It's, um, it's just stunning. It's just something we're all finding it hard to comprehend that we're we're in a classic in what we've been going sort of three years properly with some the horses are all starting to come good um we've bought this one and two runs and we're in the oaks it's just fantastic and when you when you did buy her or when you went for her what what were you thinking then i mean you got her for what 30 odd grand yeah what it so basically what happened was we we've we was sold out of shares for all our horses. Um, then we bought three foals for a couple of hundred grand, and I sold out of them immediately. And then I thought, right, let's. The next thing is really let's buy a mare to breed from. So I went there to buy a mare in foal, to be totally honest. And then we we looked and we thought it'd be nice to buy something that we could try to buy cheap, well bred, try to win a race, and then she'd be worth a lot as a brood mare to breed from. Um, and we went through the sales. I got Billy Jackson stops. He, he went and looked at seven for us. Um, but Jackie just had her eye on this one. Um, so we, we I, me and Tom couldn't be there. So Jackie went on her own. I said to Jackie, go to 60,000 guineas. Um, I don't think we're going to get her, but, you know, let's try it. The way she's bred, it was fantastic. So we, that's how it happened. And Jackie bought her 35,000 guineas. She was absolutely buzzing on the phone. It was very emotional, actually, because I wasn't in the country and uh, I was bidding over the phone. Um, and that was it, really. We just couldn't believe what we'd got. And now she's won her maiden. She's won, her, won the Lingfield Oaks trial. Okay, she's got some good fillies to beat, but she's certainly worth her chance. I was bullying her up a bit to, to Rishi yesterday, who was being a bit more, I don't know, pessimistic or realistic. But come what may, he was saying that you guys are all giving it giving it plenty of welly on, on Friday. Just just tell me your plans for the day. Well, I'm, fly, I'm in Spain at the moment. I'm flying home tomorrow. Um, we've got a double-decker bus, open-top bus. Hopefully the weather stays good for us. Epsom have looked after us unbelievably, which makes a change for race courses. So big shout out to Epsom. Um, and I think there's about 100 of us going in total. Uh, we've actually, um, the de- declarations are in a minute. Um, we might even have a horse in the race after. Um, so it's just, the buzz is just incredible. My phone hasn't stopped. Everybody's <laughs> wishing us well. We're one of the only syndicates out there that, at work the way we work you know we're totally transparent and fair it just makes it all worthwhile everything that i've been working for has come good and we've got some fabulous people involved and it's fun at the end of the day it's what it is all right tony elliott there with derby dreams alive 
I'm afraid um, the dream is over for the Paul Hannigan, Richard Fahey team, who've been together on and off for an, for an awful long time, Lee. Uh, Richard Fahey deciding he wants his horses ridden by somebody else, according to uh, former champion jockey Paul Hannigan. Yes, indeed. And um, was this a surprise? I'm not necessarily sure it, it was, Nick. It, it's, a, it's a surprise in the sense that, as a union, they seem always have been there as a united force, even during those four and a half years when Paul was the retained rider for Hamdan Al Maktoum. He was still riding regularly for Richard Fye and actually won a Group 1 for Richard Fye on Mason um, during that period. Their association stretches back pretty much for as long as Paul Hannigan has been riding. However, there were signs that all wasn't necessarily as one would have wanted it to be. I had enormous pleasure watching Paul win the Norfolk Stakes on perfect power at Royal Ascot last season. I spent a good then five, ten minutes just talking to him one-to-one about what that victory meant. And given he'd come back from very serious injury to reach that point, it meant a huge amount, and primarily because it was for Richard Farhees, a long-term supporter. But on the very next start that horse had at Goodwood, things went horribly wrong for perfect power in the Richmond Stakes. Um, it happens particularly at Goodwood. And thereafter, perfect power was ridden by Christoph Sumion. Now, we, we probably assumed that the owner um, was responsible for that decision, and very possibly he was. It's never been, been commented on. Um, but it was also the case that on 2000 Guineas Day this year, when Richard Fahey won a listed race with Um Coulton at Newmarket, Sumion was again in the saddle. Hannigan that day was at Doncaster without any rides for Richard Fahey and I think in recent days as well we have seen Sheen Orr who's obviously had tremendous success primarily for Dermot Weld riding for Richard Fahey has put rides for Richard Fahey including uh, today so it would appear that maybe Richard Fahey is moving in that direction uh, Paul's quotes the racing post of my colleague David Carr made clear he parts on on good terms Richard hasn't commented on why He's taken the decision that he has, and Paul makes clear it is Richard's decision, not his decision. I think inevitably sometimes these things happen. Um, I think it's um, hopefully will provide a, a spur for Paul Hannigan to reinvigorate his own career. He is an excellent jockey. You don't get appointed by Hamdan Amatoum for four and a half years. You don't become champion jockey twice. You don't run the number of winners that he has ridden unless you're an excellent jockey. He's still very much of an age where he could have many more years to come. And I think potentially he's just been a victim of the fact that sometimes yards do have dips as well. If you look at the, the far he stabled in 2014, he trained 192 winners. In the following years, he had 235, 198, 200 and 191. Last year, just 130. So still he's firing in loads of winners. He hasn't been as prolific as he was in the past. So to an extent... He needs to uh, move forward and maybe he feels that that's best done mm-hmm. now with another jockey. But I would have no doubt that Paul, Paul Hannigan still has many, uh, many more big winners to ride. And I'm sure that many trainers, if they've got sense, uh, will want to make good use of him. And also, Nick, we should say as well, on the same day, it was announced that Sean yeah. Flanagan well, had been sacked to stand up to, to, to Noel Mead. I was going to say, uh, Lee, with apologies to, to Derek Thompson, uh, the Manigan is neither Hannigan nor Flanagan. Uh, you're good. Um, yes, um, he. This is very true. Uh, he spent seven years with with Noel Mead. So again, a, a pretty, a pretty long association. Um, 
Sean, again, said to Racing Post, it was a, a shock for, to him. No, in response, and I just wanted to change a few things around. And I thought that certain jockeys suited certain horses, and I wanted to try that. So, yeah, interesting developments on the jockey front yesterday, Nick. Pleased to know, though, that I'm still part of the team with, with you, and you've not got any, anything to tell me, have you? Lydia Hislop will be along on Friday. <laughs> right, it's off to Hong Kong. Here's Jim McGrath. Hi, Nick. Sadly, we find ourselves reminiscing about Leicester this week. He rode everywhere, of course, one of the world's first truly international celebrity jockeys. It won't surprise you to learn that Leicester is well remembered in Hong Kong, where he was a frequent visitor in the winters from the time racing went professional back there in 1971. He rode in numerous jockeys' invitations in the 1970s and 80s, but curiously, he never really had the level of success that he enjoyed in Singapore, where he rode mostly for champion trainer Ivan Allen, also the owner of Comanche Run, who famously booked Leicester for Comanche in the 1984 St. Ledger, jockeying off Daryl McCarg amid a blaze of controversy and amusement at the time. Leicester rode 36 winners in total in Hong Kong, his biggest success coming in what is now the Classic Mile, a border horse called Stirling City. He might not have ridden an abundance of winners in Hong Kong, but he was always making headlines. He had a run-in with the chief stipendary steward Jim Marsh, who memorably gave him a lengthy suspension on the first day of a jockey's invitation meeting at Cha Tin. Lester threatened to pull out of the invitation halfway through it, much to the horror of officials who'd spent fortunes to organise the tournament. But he calmed down and he rode on after persuasion from his fellow jockeys. Lester had many friends and contacts in Hong Kong and he visited them annually right up to a few years ago. I'm sure they would join in sending condolences to his family in this very, this very sad week for racing. The Hong Kong season continues at Happy Valley today. Only 13 race days left until the end of the season. Trainer Frankie Law is having a right old battle with his mentor and former boss, John Size, for the trainer's title. There's only two wins in it. Uh, Law leads Size 78 to 76. Law's got a great chance in the last today in race nine, number three on point, who must go very close. Uh, I select him, number three on point, to beat number two, Crossford. But I think John Size is going to have a, a good day. Uh, in race five, he's got number five, Shining Fortune, who's a relatively untapped Australian talent. Joe Marrera riding for the second time. That'll be a big advantage. And he'll meet uh, former adversary Charming Steed on three pounds better terms for a short head last time. However, he's drawn right off the track in the car park in stall number 12. I think the magic man might just be able to pull it off. So I go five, Shining Fortune, to beat one, Charming Steed. In race six, number six escape route is one to keep an eye on. Trained by size and ridden by Karis Teton. Number four, escape route. This was formerly trained by uh, Richard Fahey, third in the July stakes and also fourth in the gym crack a couple of years back. And he's going the right way. He's a last start winner, so he should go in. So race six, four escape route to beat seven, nearly fine. Take those in a tote swinger and all multiples. Uh, if you like, for race number six. So that's uh, racing at Happy Valley and all from the, on the Hong Kong beat this week. I'll have more for you next week. Thanks to the croc. Lee Morissette is still here 
and he oh has a he has a tip for you. Yes, Nick. Well, two tips. I would echo everything Rishi said on the pod yesterday about Desert Crown. I adore the horse, have done since he won at Nottingham uh, last November, and I have a similar emotional attachment to the South Stable, having had a scrapbook of Stout Swinburne horses growing up. So I'm right with Rishi on Desert Crown. I don't know what Rishi feels about the the Weatherby's Personalised Gifts handicap at Ripon tonight, the 6.35, but hopefully he would agree with me that Fortimore, a horse with tremendous course and distance form at Ripon, a track where if you go on those, those ridges and dips, uh, you often succeed in the future again. I think Fortimore, with three course wins behind him, can make it four tonight in the 6.35 at Ripon and Desert Crown for the Derby. Uh, Lee, thank you very much. Um, you've given so much today. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you again tomorrow. I'll be coming to you from Epsom Downs tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, because I'll be then doing the draw, I'm, I'm hoping, with, with Kieran Fallon. And then we will be um, at Oaks and Derby Friday and Saturday, but from all of us here for the moment. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.